Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Adam, we're back. It's season two, baby. It's been too long, Matt. I've missed you. I've missed watching movies with you. I've, uh, I've missed the sound of your voice, that sweet timber. <laughs> I've missed this it so voice. Much. Oh yeah, yeah, it's 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 nice to hang out with you too, Adam. I'm looking forward to it. So everyone, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. Then we all watch them for uh, from our vantage as ministers or as theologians or as scholars and mostly as people who love movies uh, and ministry. Then we gather for a conversation with our guests. In our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith. Our guest, Catherine Willis-Pershey, has asked us to watch A Little Princess, and so we've done it, and now we have a conversation about what it has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, called Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with A Little Princess for this coming Lectionary Sunday, which will be October 2nd of Year C, the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time, also World Communion Sunday. And then in our last segment called Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we are reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Catherine Willis-Pershey is the Associate Minister at First Congregational Church in Western Springs, Illinois, and a widely published author. Her newest book, Very Married, Field Notes on Love and Fidelity, is coming out right now from Herald Press. Go buy this book at your local bookstore, and you can find it wherever books of exceedingly high quality are sold. Catherine, we're so glad that you've taken the time to be with us on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Catherine, by way of beginning, I've been pondering after watching A Little Princess exactly what constitutes a period piece. And I think it's pretty hard to explain. Uh, period films at once have to tell a compelling story but they also focus really intensely on the myriad of small details that allow an audience to immerse itself in a moment in history or a place which they have never lived. I think we could probably debate about whether something like Dazed and Confused or uh, Netflix's most recent show, Stranger Things, uh, can be described as period. But I think that the true height of period drama requires the recreation of a world that no one living has actually lived in. And so period films pose this challenge to a filmmaker to do a type of world building that represents a former world with all of its strange logic without also being totally slavish to history. In this way, period pieces are akin to fantasy and sci-fi, even though they look totally different. As evidence of this idea, I think young auteurs in Hollywood have long used sci-fi and period drama to make names for themselves. So George Lucas in the 80s, uh, with Jane Campion in the 90s with The Piano, Josh Trank recently, Carrie Fukunaga, who's Jane Eyre, um, I think it was in 2013, is amazing. It's a stunning piece of work. I think we can also add to this list uh, Mexican director Alfonso Cuaron, who begins his career with this movie, A Little Princess. A Little Princess is based on Frances Hodgson Burnett's book of the same name, and it's about this girl with 
a rich imagination and she is truly precious and she is literally rich. But then she goes to school and through a series of unfortunate events becomes poor. And then by a series of almost miraculous events becomes rich again. The movie has all of these like good Dickensian tropes. They're like mean headmasters and bullying girls, strange unexplained characters with special powers. In the hands of Quaron, this movie is capable of real magic and has um, some, some quite beautiful sequences. His camera is really deft. I think the art direction is strange and beguiling. Now, Catherine. This movie seems a nice piece of period confection and is a piece of strong world building, but it's also a little light on performance and story. So as you were thinking about what movie to choose, what about this movie stood out to you as theologically or culturally relevant for today? Well, uh, just to clarify, I hadn't actually watched the movie in a long time, and I can't really remember the circumstances under which I did watch the movie. It came out after my childhood. Like, I wouldn't have watched it as, you know, a, a girl who would have been the same age as Sarah Crewe. Uh, I did. I picked it in part because, you know, it's an early Caron film, and he has apparently been quoted saying that it's one of his favorite movies that he's done. So he stands by this movie. Um, and I picked it because I honestly, right now, I'm always going to be um, doing two things, trying to kill two birds with one stone, as my mother would say, and I needed to pick something I could watch with my kids. Um, of course, that backfired on me because uh, my daughters ended up weeping uncontrollably at the end of the film. <laughs> it, it was a little bit of a tra traumatizing experience for them. Um, but it is a movie about privilege and class and race, and it doesn't really take on these issues perfectly. Um, it does have one particularly powerful scene uh, that relates to this. Um, Sarah Crewe, who is the, the very rich girl at this school, has befriended Becky, who lives at the school as a servant. And one of the other students points out that Sarah shouldn't talk to Becky because she has dark skin. And Sarah asks, so? And the girl says, doesn't that mean something? And it's clear she doesn't really know what it means, but um, it means something in their, in their society. And I think it's an incredibly telling question. And um, even though our own context is very different from the 20th century. I think there's still a lot of kids who could ask the same question honestly because of the messages they're picking up. Um, they've picked up that race means something in our society, but they aren't entirely sure what that is. Um, and they're often unwilling or unable to unpack what race does mean and does not mean. Uh, they'd rather just like call for colorblindness, which the movie might do a little bit uh, if, if you, um, it, may, it may well go into that territory. But if we are going to effectively dismantle bias and raise anti-racist kids, I think we need to start naming uh, what race does and does not mean and accept that this is going to be one of the questions children have. Um, what doesn't that mean something? They don't know what because nobody wants to talk about it, but, but it means something um, and does not mean what they may think it means. Yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, Quaron does something interesting um, I mean, using the, the source text of Burnett by 
giving Sarah Crew this opportunity to live in a place of difference, right? I mean, this does uh, distinguish her as a character from the rest of the girls in this school, which is she grew up in India. Um, and while she grew up as a, a girl of considerable privilege, she also has this opportunity to spend time with people who look, sound, and act differently than her. And that does distinguish her from the rest of the students at this school. Yeah, she has a different narrative. Now, granted, that narrative um, and context was given to her by colonialism right. and privilege. Um, she still sees the world differently because of having had a broader uh, experience. Um, I do think the movie falters a little bit in its treatment, uh, particularly of the Ram Dass character, the Indian yes. man who lives next door. Um, he's kind of a caricature. He's treated as a cousin to what Spike Lee calls the super duper magical Negro trope in film. Uh, the film does have this lovely tinge of magical realism, but a lot of it does sort of ge is generated by um, the magical Indian who happens to live next door. And that's, you know, a little questionable. Yeah, so Edward Said's Orientalism and his understanding of sort of the Far East and its role and um, the tropes that it plays within our Western societies are on display here. And in in some ways, while Quarun does make some attempts to try and figure out how, how do we integrate privilege, poverty into a worldview that sees the sort of common human value around us. He does use these um, these tropes and these ideas that uh, that twenty years later feel pretty hard to watch. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the 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 idea that the that the that the Indian character is the one that has magic. I mean, it's, in many ways, this is a lot like like Annie. We watched Annie as our uh, as our closing show of the last uh, of the last season, and there too is um is this indian character who has these special powers um matt this movie is probably stranger than it needed to be and and annie is a source text there's a point in the movie where the girls say yes miss mention right. that sounds almost like it was lifted from annie um there's shirley temple's original version also present in this like in the in the girls curls sure. that are everywhere um there's also the wizard of oz that's i mean there's this big emerald building that they continue to go in and out of uh what is quaron aiming at here what what does it have to do with our work in ministry so i think this movie is really interesting as a cultural relic for a lot of the reasons that Catherine lifted out but as i was thinking about it for ministry and for the church, what I kept getting, what kind of kept uh, piquing my curiosity was this refrain about storytelling and imagination that runs through it. You know, there's a way to read this film where the virtue that Sarah has that helps her be likable and effective and helps her do change is that she is um, kind. And she's kind to people who don't necessarily... Um, give kindness back to her and that it's kind of this classical virtue that we might pull forward even from the source text but i think qual run wants something a little different from it where it's not just kindness but it's her ability as a storyteller that actually becomes the kind of dynamic personality trait that drives the plot forward i think he's really interested in i mean you see it in her she's she's 
telling stories to the other girls. She's able to pull them into fantasies. Um, at, at times, those fantasies actually become on display in the film because Quaron is kind of interested in this whole idea of the film as a fantasy that has that it gets people woven into it and sucked into it. Uh, I, I think that's part of what is most attractive to him about this film and about this story. And I, and then of course you get this big moment where the, the stories that she is telling in some ways kind of begin to materialize for her and for Becky in the upper room due to the intervention of the, the, the cousin to the magical Negro, which I think is exactly um, who that, that character becomes. And I, so I'm thinking about this in the context of preaching um, just because so much of what I'm trying to do on a Sunday morning is weave a kind of story that people can find themselves in and people find themselves compelled by. Um, but it is, of course, not so obvious that if we just tell it right, um, a magical character will show up to make it all exactly as we say. And so I, I'm, I'm, th that's kind of where I'm resonating with this and also feeling challenged by it. Um, because storytelling in the real world, that kind of escapism doesn't always necessarily um, uh, get us anywhere. So in some ways, it feels like a film that's all about escapism, even while maybe it's trying to hold us to some conversations about identity that we should be having. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm landing with this. Adam, what, do, what, what about you? Um, I think for me, I, I, I landed in a place of, similar to you matt where the the storytelling and the value of storytelling especially in contrast with the type of education that they're receiving becomes really interesting in what ways has our education um, destroyed our ability to be an oral culture uh i i think the the orality that is present in this movie in the form of sarah crew Though she's telling this story of uh, generally of this Indian prince and princess is the most interesting thing to Poirot, and I think he wants to say that um, that what you believe to be a prince, that what you believe to be royalty, that is born not of actual royalty, but of the stories that people make in order to like give them some some sense of duty in the world that that it's the storytellers that are the sort of moral ethical arbiters of the world that they're the ones that have to um to to create uh the paradigms by which we understand uh what counts as virtue uh, Catherine, as you watch this with your with your kids did the princess stuff resonate at all well the princess stuff is both problematic in some ways but also i think where some of the power of the film lies so you know i feel i felt conflicted um it has some questionable gender stuff i mean the lesson of the movie i mean repeat it i mean in one of the most you know poignant i mean it's a movie full of of almost overblown poignant moments but one of them she says every girl is a princess or something like that that's the right. that's the claim of the movie every girl is a princess it's meant to be empowering and inclusive. Um, I mean, many feminists would question whether being a princess is really like the worthwhile life goal. But again, they're not looking at um, just a, a, a privilege or, or, or wealth or 
being pretty, that's not what makes a princess. To be a princess, I think, in this, in the definition of the, this movie, the, the definition this movie is using is that to be a princess is to be beloved, to be worthy. And um, when Sarah Crew, you know, shouts this at uh, Mean Miss Minchin, that every girl is a princess, what she's really saying is that every girl is worthy of love. So there's some, you know, theological anthropology happening here. And her her identity as a beloved child comes from this preternaturally perfect father. I mean, Captain Crew is, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he's, he's the romantic ideal of father. And there's some funny, there's a lot of like fan stuff about this movie online. And one, I can't remember where I read it, some article written by an adult who'd watched this movie as a child you know when she said when she was a kid she wanted captain crew she wished he was her dad and now she's like oh captain crew is um he's just you know he he ages well however the film doesn't age well like captain crew ages well so but so when sarah says this though to miss minchin she is the teacher the headmistress is visibly wrecked um when sarah asks her if her father ever told her she was a princess you know obviously miss minchin's father was no captain crew and and it's always a danger to root our identities solely on other fallible human beings. But um, the message of the movie is is that no matter who you are, you are a princess. And the message of the gospel is that no matter who you are, you are belo- a beloved child of God, created in God's image. So I think there's some theological resonance there as well, despite the fact it's wrapped in princess. I think Quarun is making the point, too, which is an important one, and I think important for larger feminist discussions about the value of this paradigm or this symbol of princess. I think he's trying to say what you understand a princess to be is, um, is malleable. And it's the storytellers who get to tell you it's, it's the storytellers Mm -hmm. that get to sort of reshape and reframe what's going on. Right. And Mm -hmm. It's less the academic, it's less the the person who wants to like clearly define the boundaries of each of these roles or identities, and more the people who are telling stories that get to reshape whatever it is um, we find so um, deplorable about a particular image. And, and that does resonate with me, actually. I, I think he's right to recognize that there's the power in the story to reframe identity is greater than the power of someone who's just diagnosing or describing what's going on. All right, Matt, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, looking at the lectionary passages for year C, the 22nd Sunday of Ordinary Time, October 2nd, and also World Communion Sunday. Catherine, as you look at these lectionary passages, what are standing out at you? Well... The Lamentations passage, uh, the connection there is almost ridiculously literal. Right. Uh, you know, Jerusalem has been destroyed, and Jerusalem is described as, as she that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. And so, you know, the movie does lamentation well. Um, and there, it, one of several emotionally devastating scenes that scarred my children was the scene right after Sarah has learned that she's an orphan and she'll no longer live at the school as a coddled student, but as a servant in the cold and wet and rat-infested attic. And she takes a piece of chalk and, in an echo of the folk tale that she has 
been telling that she learned in colonial India, she draws a circle around herself and just weeps in this circle. It's an incredibly sad image that, you know, one could um, connect to the devastated Jerusalem, the, the dethroned princess. Um, again, highly literal. <laughs> um, There's actually a, uh, the, the connection I made immediately, and I know he's re referencing his own film, but... Uh, there's also a bit in um, Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ when Jesus goes into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by the devil and he draws the circle in the sand and stays in. And, and I, so when, when she does that in the attic, I immediately thought about The Temptation, which I thought was an interesting parallel. That movie is 88, so it's not out of the possibility that um, Quaron's playing with it a little bit there, too. Yeah. There's also another, you know, obvious but awkward connection uh, between the movie and the gospel reading. Uh, there's a scene right after Sarah has arrived at the school in which she appalls everyone, Miss Minchin and the other girls, by thanking Becky for serving her breakfast. Um, it, it's a nicety that totally breaks social order. You don't speak to the servants. Um, and I'd forgotten about the scene when I picked the movie, but of course it reminded me of, the, um, of Luke 17. Uh, when Jesus asked the question, do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? And the implication is that this is a ridiculous question. No, you don't expect, um, you don't thank the slave. You expect the slave to obey and you don't thank them for their service. And and frankly, that's the kind of scripture that makes me squirm. And I want to say, no, you do say thank you, Jesus. And see, learn, learn your lesson from little Sarah Crew, who says thank you to Becky. Um, so I wasn't exactly sure what to do with that because that is one of those passages. I mean, I know that it's it's getting at obedience in the life of faith and that we serve God out of a sense of duty and delight, as Kimberly Bracken Long has, has said. Um, but I struggled with it. Right. Matt, what do you think? As you look at that Luke passage, what stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting passage, especially on World Communion Sunday. I, I think what is tricky and I... I think this is part of what Catherine's getting at is the um the second person pronoun. Uh, so he Jesus invites the disciples to identify with the master in this relationship. You know, uh, would you not rather say to the slave, "Prepare supper for me, put on your apron, serve me while I eat and drink"? And so the slave and the servant kind of gets objectified in the story. And I I think it's kind of tricky, especially on World Communion Sunday, because this is kind this can be a day in life of the church where to speak about race and privilege again, we get super excited about kind of patting our back because we claim this everyone has a place at the table language. Um, but we do it kind of at the risk of living into that objectification that the the servant or the other should be just really excited for the chance to be there. And I think it's tricky in kind of all white privileged churches to use this day to make themselves kind of feel better about diversity. Like this is the day in life of the church when we celebrate that Everyone can come to the table, even though actually we're doing it in a congregation that's 99% white and a denomination that's almost there, too. Uh, I think this is, you know, as this shows up in the film pretty obviously in ways we've already talked about, it, and even in the scene that Catherine was mentioning, or in that colonialist lens that, get placed, that gets placed on Ramdas. Uh, but I think I, I want to still feel kind of uncomfortable about those depictions, um, because I think the film shares that kind of white gaze and i think it shows up in the way that we can do world communion sunday really poorly and i think the way to do it well with this text is to remember that 
we are supposed to be the servant in the story, right? That the that we're not supposed to identify with the master. We're supposed to be coming to a table that we don't deserve to be at, and a table that's all kinds of broken by all the brokenness of the world. And so I guess my plea is to not use World Communion Sunday as a way to help your white church feel better about by racism. singing African hymns because um, it can be done so poorly. It can be done so poorly. So just please do it well. I want to go back to that theme. I, I absolutely concur uh, with what you said. Um, one of the primary reasons I picked this film to go back to your original question is I really wanted for a, a, a movie to discuss before World Communion Sunday. I, you know, one of my most basic qualifications was that it had to have a great feast scene. And while there is uh, troubling implications to, you know, the magical Ramdas being the one who um, makes that happen. So so sure. in the film, Becky and Sarah, their punishment is that they will not be given nothing to eat the following day. And so um, Sarah will do all of the work and Becky will be um, locked in her room. And they're, you know, they're, they're both devastated. They're not going to have food. What will we do? And then Sarah encourages them to pretend to feast, you know, they, and it, it becomes this invitation to imagination. Well, then, of course, the next morning they wake up and, you know, it's not at all creepy that apparently someone stole into the room and, and set the table. But now they have, on this day that they were to have nothing, they have um, a true feast. And, it, and, and Becky's like, I might be too scared to eat. And Sarah's like, I'm not that scared and dives right in. Um, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful scene. And while theologically... There is far more to the Eucharist than, you know, an Eucharistic theology than the role of imagination. I mean, we don't imagine that the bread and juice or bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ. There's something happening, you know, that 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 is beyond us that, um, you know, from above, so to speak, that is, is holy and as those elements are consecrated. But it still takes some imagination to go there. I mean, and, and faithful imagination. And so that for me was, um, despite the the troubling implications of that scene, I also really loved, I love a good food scene. Right. And so I, there's this beautiful, um, there's this beautiful part of St. Joan, uh, George Bernard Shaw's play, where the, uh, the interrogator says to Joan, uh, or Joan says to the interrogator, I, I hear the voice of God in my head. Or, and the interrogator says, Joan, that's not the voice of God. That's your imagination. She says, of course it is. Where else would I hear God? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're right to recognize that, right, there are, there is, there are this, these literal material things. And it's important that the Eucharist is material. It's important that they're eating actual food there, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. Quaron could have gone totally magical realist and just had them eat fake food or something that didn't, that wasn't real. Like it was only in their imagination and they were sort of fed by their imagination. I like that he kept it material. I mm-hmm. like that this was actual bodied sustenance that these ki- these kids were eating. Similarly, I like that it also stayed in their head that they didn't quite know how all of this happened and we as the audience are the only ones who sort of see both of that at the same time 
similarly, there is a connection with the Eucharist because revelation, the revelation of God, um, it occurs in our imagination. Like, Absolutely. How, how else do we notice the revealed God in the world but through our imagination? And, um, and, that, and that scene does pull together the material and the imaginative, the sort of um, the ethereal, the eternal um, with the material. And it, it's an unexpected gift. And, and I think it's important that it ground that it's real food too, because it grounds it in actual hunger. I mean, and and so we don't tend to eat bread and drink the cup on Sunday mornings because we're hungry. Uh, but there is a thread that you know they they are in the attic. They're not going to have food all day unless food magically appears for them. It pairs with this moment in the in the film where she goes out into the streets and 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 has a coin and is able to buy a bun that feeds a beggar. They, I mean, there's this thread on people who need actual food, and I think it reminds us that the communion table is also not totally disconnected from the real physical hunger of people in the world and our call to um, to serve them. I mean, I, I don't think right, and I think that, that I mean. It's kind of a bummer of a World Communion Sunday, but to recognize your complicity in the hunger of other people in the West, um, that that though you stand around this table, there are empty tables around the world that are empty in part because you stand around this table. And that's a heavy thing to take on, but I, I think to do a World Communion Sunday with any type of real integrity has to at least beseech God in the call to confession to all of the ways in which we've um, we've prevented people from eating, uh, from, from meeting their material needs. And I, I think as people of privilege, people um, in a Western church, people, white churches in particular, we marginalize the material so much and we sort of valorize poverty in ways um, that make it really hard to celebrate this this particular holiday as well. And I think that you've made a really good point about that, Matt. Uh, this week I was reading this section of Talmud, um, as you do. Uh, and <laughs> right. Oh, which one were you on, Adam? Um, no. <laughs> and uh, it's this great story where these uh, these two, this rabbi and his son, they get tired of the world. And so they go into a cave and they bury themselves up to their neck. Um, and they just read Torah, and they sit there, and um, and for some reason they have to come out, and they come out out back into the world, out of their cave, and they see this person just like plowing a field, and they get so indignant that the person has um, resigned himself to the material and the temporal, and they get so angry that. Uh, they start burning up the world everywhere that they look. And so they're just destroying the world, basically. And then suddenly God, as a voice from heaven, says, why are you destroying my world? Do you hate it so much? Back to your cave. And so it's this lovely moment where, where God sends the people who don't recognize that the material and um, is good as well. That... Uh, that the temporal, 
that those who are embodied and using their bodies in toil and in labor, they too have tremendous work to do in this world. It's not just those who study. It's not just those who are disembodied. Well, I think that should probably wrap up our uh, lectionary conversation on this movie. And it wraps up, unfortunately, our time with Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a lot of fun. I have to admit, I kind of enjoyed making you watch A Little Princess. Well, I almost enjoyed watching it. Uh... <laughs> Matt, Matt enjoyed it more than he said. He sent me a text yesterday telling me how much he liked it. That, that is not true, and I will deny it if asked. Uh Catherine willis Percy is the author of Very Married Field Notes on Love and Fidelity, which is out like right now. So you should go buy it and enjoy it. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will come back after the break. Matt, we're nearly finished. It's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. And it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So I want to tell people to go and buy a book. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, this, this is a movie by... podcast, man. I know. I I know. Sometimes I read books. This one actually has pictures in it, so it's it's kind of easy. But uh, so uh, the book I want you to go buy is by a New Yorker cartoonist, Roz Chast. Um, and I actually have a few of her compilations around, but she has an amazing memoir out. It's actually been out about a year called uh, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Um, I'm kind of obsessed with this book right now. Uh, so Chast is a New Yorker cartoonist. She's a secular Jew. This is a memoir about her journey with her aging parents from the first sign of their failing health in their early 90s to their deaths. They are living in this Brooklyn apartment that they've been in for 50 years. Part of the joy of the book is watching them sift through junk and stuff. Um, but more than that, it is... Uh, hilarious in the way that only her voice can do and also deeply poignant and deeply pastoral. I find this book to be doing the thing that Christians are supposed to be able to do, but rarely can, which is to kind of look death in the eye with honesty and vulnerability and some sense of grace. Uh, um, you should be reading this alongside being mortal, which was all over the bestseller list last year. But for my money, this is the more interesting take. It's not at all saccharine. It talks about her own journey of cleaning through the crap in their apartment and dealing with the money of how to pay for long-term care. And it, uh, it thinks, I think that the art of it allows us to never have to doubt how much she loves her parents and she doesn't seem like she needs to prove it to us. And so you can have the rest of it without having to be, uh, without having to have that anxiety underneath. I think this book should be in every pastor's toolbox. I think it's good for adults dealing with aging parents, which are certainly in my congregation in spades. And I think that everyone should go read it. So that's my plug. Ross Chast, can't we talk about something that, more pleasant? That sounds amazing. What about you, Adam? I, I'm going to go pick it up today. This week I was, uh, I was listening to uh, Live at Budokan, which is a Bob Dylan album from the 1970s where he uh where he and this sort of kick-ass rock band go and play this live show and he basically rearranges all of his songs all of the ones that you know and i was i was led to start listening to this because uh over in my neck of the woods in boston there's uh a group of people over at Harvard Divinity School and in the Boston area who have started doing uh, research and questioning uh, what makes 
uh, something sacred text. And they started a new podcast called Harry Potter as Sacred Scripture. Uh, I haven't listened to the podcast. It might be very good. I have no idea. Uh, I, if you'd like to listen to it, I commend you to it. I just don't really care for Harry Potter very much. I know. Don't send me any uh, emails. I will send you his email address <laughs> if you ask nicely. Um, I started thinking, is there a secular corpus of things that I would be willing to count as sacred scripture? And I think perhaps the closest thing that I came to was the, um, the corpus of Bob Dylan. Because it's weird, it's poignant, it's poetic. It there are stories told. There are there's passages of just pure nonsense, um, and I think it holds up over time. And this is where the Live at Budokan album comes in. I think something that's uh, unique about sacred scripture, something that is required in order to call it sacred scripture is that it has to be malleable enough that new people can take it and rearrange it and mess with it, and it still holds with integrity. And the amazing thing about Bob Dylan is that he actually does this with his own material. He grows very tired of singing uh, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding the same way over and over again, and so he rearranges it. And the whole album is him rearranging his own stuff with this ripping band, which is which was called Street Legal behind him. It's it's like Bob Dylan with the E Street band behind him. Uh, and it always annoyed me listening to it. But now as someone who admires the ability to take good source material and rearrange it, to rethink it, to try and find like new nooks and crannies, new ideas that um, that were hidden away. I love this album. And as I listened to it, I kept thinking, I want to be a preacher who creates solid stuff and then rearranges it later and finds new insight and old ideas. Um, and I couldn't help but thinking that lectionary preaching is a good way to do this. Um, hmm. That going back to old sermons and figuring out ways that you can rearrange them into better sermons is itself a noble task and not one that I've thought a lot about how to do well. And so Bob Dylan's Live at Budokan has sort of been stirring in me these ideas about um, what do we do with old sermons and how do we make them new again? It's funny, we don't coordinate these postludes. I almost decided to talk about Don't Think Twice, which is the new Mike Birbiglia film about the improv comedy troupe in New York, which is really an amazing piece of kind of uh-oh comedy. Uh, and obviously prominently is named after the Dylan song, and I think it has some really interesting interpretive lenses to think about in terms of the Dylan song. And I, if I had done that, then we would have had like a whole Dylan fest here, Adam. It would have been well, a whole I mean, that's podcast, the thing. That's so. why Dylan might count as sacred scripture, right? Because you could drop him into the title of a film and people will recognize that Don't Think Twice might have some overlap with what Dylan's trying to say. This is ultimately um, why you too will never be sacred scripture is because their, their songs are, Again, send your that's Adam. Tweet your things at Adam. Don't get you mad at me. Is ultimately can only write you two songs. 
no one goes and covers U2 songs because they can't see themselves in them because Bono is a self-obsessed narcissist. So, um, so he writes songs and they work and they're great pieces of pop U2, but they don't resonate in the life of other people so much so that they then are taken and refashioned and reformed. End of rant. I think like 80% of the college acapella groups in the country <laughs> would disagree with you, but <laughs> that's fine. I think we need to quit. I think that about wraps it up for this episode. We are not quite done. We've got a great lineup of guests for season two of Technicolor Jesus. And next time we get together, we're going to be talking to M.T. Davila, who is a associate professor of Christian ethics at Andover Newton. She's your neighbor, Adam. and uh, Yeah, she's literally across the hall from me right now. She's written extensively on liberation theology and Catholic social teaching. And thank here, thanks to Digital Magic, here she is to give us our assignment. Hi, Adam and Matt. This is MT from Andover Newton. And I want us all to watch The Iron Giant, which is one of my favorite movies. And even though it's an animated film, um, perhaps labeled as for children, it has tremendous themes in it about being and becoming, sin, redemption, and whether these terms even make sense anymore considering... um, how much social conditions and political and cultural conditions shape who we are and who we become and the decisions that we make individually and collectively, um, and especially when it comes to issues such as systemic evil. So I'm looking forward to this, and I hope people can join us um, having watched The Iron Giant. Sweet. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I'm really excited to revisit it. Yeah, Iron Giant's a great film. I think it's Brad Bird's first, and uh, he went on to Pixar to do amazing films there, too. That's the end of our show today. Everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And if you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend, write it uh, in the sky, tattoo it on your heart. Every little bit helps other people find the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) 